Welcome to What Is It About the Weather, the weekly podcast where we discuss all things weather intertwined, but not the weather. I'm your host, Mark Jelanek, and this week we're going to be talking about why you shouldn't drink iced tea. Well, it may not be that simple, but you know, catchy title. Maybe catches some people's attentions out there that weren't already listening. I hope you've had an enjoyable and interesting weather week intertwined in some way, maybe that it hasn't been before for you in the past. You know, last time I talked about the Juno probe and that it was going to be flying over the great red dot or red storm or whatever you want to call it over Jupiter, and that happened. And some images have started coming back. One of them I'm using as the cover art for today's episode. So if you don't get the individual episode art, which I don't, some some of the programs, they use kind of the default, I don't know, the little image that goes with the podcast, you can always go to the website and catch it or just, you know, find me on Twitter if you're not already there or Facebook or whatever, and you can see it. So there's one of those pictures. Now, it was one of the original ones from kind of the cam that they send out, and there'll be a link in the show notes if you want to go take a look at that. But I've also put one of those pictures, like I said, as, as the cover art, did a little enhancement when it came down, when I got it downloaded, it was looking a little uh, flat color-wise, and, and I'm looking at other people doing the same thing. I haven't tried to change anything with the image, just tried to pop the colors a little bit so you can get a, a little better view of what we're seeing from Jupiter's great red dot. Now, one of the things, you know, we did the episode a few back, I think it was episode 50 where I talked about just the podcast in general. We went over some of the questions that I get and different things like that. One of them that I didn't cover in the episode, and I'm going to try to do this from time to time as well, which is you, know, you, you send questions, or like I said, I get asked questions just when I'm talking to people about you know maybe what sources I use, which is we're going to cover today. But you know it's not always an episode idea. You know it, it may just be something simple. And I'm going to try to intertwine those in different places within the podcast going forward, sometimes in this intro, sometimes in the interesting tidbit. So we're going to do two today, one here, one there, kind of one beginning, one end. But don't, you know, if you've got just something simple, don't hesitate to ask. And I may answer you directly via email or if we're talking face to face, you know, I may give you an answer there, but may still bring it up on the podcast if I think it's something that other people you know, might find interesting or useful. So one of those that I have been asked is the question, what weather sources do I use for the non-weather weather stories? In other words, <laughs> you know, they were, they were being a little funny when the, when the question got asked, but they were, they were really getting down to, you know, when, you, when you're looking for just content in general, or ideas, or when you're following things, just, you know, in your everyday life, you seem to have a lot of stories or whatever that are related to, you know, weather being applied in everyday life. And there's not a simple answer per se. I'm going to give you a a couple of options, though. But generally speaking, it could be a lot of sources. I mean, I, I I get this nice kind of digest from the American Meteorological Society. And I don't, I think it's only for members that's kind of a weekly email that they send out that's news you can use. And some of them, again, are very weather related and aren't necessarily applicable. But like one this week 
was a, a link to a story related to the agriculture industry. And I found that very interesting, you know, went and dug into it a little bit more. And sometimes that leads me to other things. So a lot of times I'll, I'll see a story somewhere and it's not always through some sort of digest or feed that just happened to be one. And I'll find myself digging into the topic. But a lot of times if I'm just looking at weather or dealing with a weather issue, a lot of times it's looking at industry information or other sources, you know, it could be a, a LinkedIn group or something where some of these things come from. But two that you could probably use are the following. One is the Capital Weather Gang. And you've heard me mention them here before. Last week, you know, I threw out Angela Fritz's coverage on, on some of the Juno stuff. And actually, she wrote a follow-up article on that this week. So they do a lot of non-weather. They do, they do weather as well. But there's a good healthy mix in there. So you could always have the Capital Weather Gang website within your mix, something to, to keep handy. And another one is Marshall Shepard's Forbes column. Now, again, sometimes it's more weather, but a lot of times it is weather relating to how we, as just normal folk out there, interpret it and deal with it. So you might find that useful. Marshall and I don't always agree on everything, um, but as a past AMS president, he has a, a very broad view of things. You know, currently he's a professor at an institution um, and focused more on that than than maybe the, the outside component to it, but you, you don't ever kind of let that go. So while he's not the AMS president where he you know he's doing that all the time, having been in that position, and, and also he has a show on the Weather Channel called Weather Geeks, but he so he tends to look at things also from a lot of different angles, from the education perspective, certainly like he does now, but in his role as AMS, it would have been, you know, it could have been things like policy, it could have been, you know, different outreach and, and interacting with all the different aspects of, you know, what we call the weather enterprise. So he tends to have a, a holistic kind of broad vision on things. And so he, he touches on a lot of things there. So those are two, if you're not already following or, you know, looking at it on an occasional basis. I mean, sometimes, like I said, I have them referenced here in the show, and I put links in the show notes. I'll put links to their broader, you know, capturing bucket there. So there'll be a link to Marshall Shepard's Forbes, kind of all his articles. So there's a nice kind of indexing of that. And the same with the Capital Weather Gang. Instead of referencing a specific story this week, I'll just put a link to their broadside. So there's two pieces that you can use. Now... Let's dig into the main story. Why you shouldn't drink iced tea. Now, really where we're going with this is how do we keep cool when it's hot? And you've heard me, you, know, you guys have heard me talk about heat and it being kind of that you know, sneaky killer when it comes to weather. And just using some common sense, like I was talking about last week, you know, with don't you know, when it's hot outside, don't leave pets and people in your car sort of thing. But now we're going to talk a little bit about how we keep cool, right? Because, you know, it's, it's easy to say that sometimes, but how do we actually get to that step to where we don't overheat? And before we dig into the methods, let's talk a little bit about how our body really does that. And there's four primary ways that, that we talk about. And I will put a link in the show notes so that you can dig into some of this a little bit more. A lot of it, I don't want you to get hung up on the words or the phrases because 
even the nuances for somebody who studied this, sometimes I have to really think through, okay, which one of these is it and how is it involved? So there's four things, but again, think more about kind of what's going on. All of it involves the idea of moving heat from the inside of our body, the core of our body, which is where most of our heat is produced, to the outer edges and, and away from our body. Again, there's four things. Evaporation. We've talked about this at length, and I'm not going to really go there. And in, in the early You Ask, We Answer episodes, and I'll put a link in the show notes so you can go back to that episode, I did one on evaporative cooling and how that works. And anybody who's ever spent time, you know, with, you know, you've been maybe got hot and sweaty, particularly in an area that is low in humidity and maybe a little wind, you quickly kind of feel that sensation, that cooling sensation. So we've, we've delved into that one. The next one is convection. This one's a little tricky because what we're really talking about is the movement the heat and the movement of fluids. And now remember, fluids can be air, fluids can be water, fluids can be your blood. And, and that's the typical description that's used is our blood moves away from the core and part of that motion process. So it's not just the transfer between two things, but that motion process is involved, involves getting that heat away from the core. Okay, and we'll come back to each of these a little bit in what we're talking about during the episode. The next is conduction. And conduction's a, r- a little easier to understand. If you're ever hot and you sit on a cold stone slab, the dissipation of heat between your body and that surface is conduction. So that it's going from surface to surface. It's very much when two items are connected with one another. And it's the movement and the essentially the equalization of temperatures between those those two surfaces. And the last is radiation, and people sometimes forget about this. You know, we we're so used to talking about radiation that comes to our body from the sky or from outside sources, but your body radiates as well. So, when you think about the skin layer, let's say on your body, know that you emit radiation. And a good way I like to equate this is if you've ever been, you know, under the sheets in a bed, and maybe the temperature in the room is fine, but you and this other person are, you know, laying in bed under the covers, and you'll notice it gets hot in there. Well, part of that, part of it, not all of it, is you're radiating heat away from your body. And that's getting trapped in this environment and actually heating it up. So those are the four ways. All right. Those are the four ways that it happens. Now let's talk about some of the traditional methods that have been used over the years. Kind of the what I call ancient tech. You know, we've done a little bit of that before, but the ancient tech that we've used to keep cool. Now, some of these are kind of obvious. Some of them may be less obvious. But building a building that's underground or going underground. You know, I lived in a house that didn't have air conditioning in Syracuse, New York. And one of the ways that I kept cool was I had an office in the basement. And this gets into the idea that the earth around the building actually stays relatively cool. You know, when the sun beats down on the earth, a lot of that heat never makes it into the ground. While it does get radiated downward, it takes a while. You know, and another way to even think about it is if you live in an area that's colder, you may find, and this is the opposite of heat, that you have to have 
pipes below a certain level so they don't freeze. So, th so the earth is somewhat self-regulating, but it also, just like it, that primary surface might get cold, it can also get hot, but that tends not to radiate down as far. So that once you go down a little further, it tends to stay at kind of a temperate range. And that earth around the building keeps that air space within that building relatively cool. It was funny, I was reading some of these articles. Another one that in non-air-conditioned oriented places, and I've certainly lived in one of these, it's go to department stores. They have the air conditioning. Now, the article was a bit old, but it's true. A lot of the stores, for instance, in Santiago, Chile, that was where people went. You know, they go to the mall because the mall had air conditioning. And it worked on really hot days. And I actually employed that technique on more than one occasion. But again, if, if you get back to like how we constructed buildings and how we did it more basically before there was this AC, right? And that's really the idea that we're talking about here is you don't always have quick access to air conditioning. Things like high ceilings, older construction, particularly here like in the south where I am now, buildings built hundreds of years ago tended to have very high ceilings so that the hot air, which we know rises, could rise up and be captured in the higher levels near the ceiling. Another thing is thick walls. Now, this one can work both for and against you, and anybody that's been in, it's kind of that attached to earth. So thicker walls, it's harder for that heat from the outside to travel through. But if you've got a door open, that takes that out the window. And then once it's hot inside, getting it cooled back off, those thick walls can actually work against you. You know, there's fans. And as we know, fans don't really cool things. And actually, the electrical motor of a fan heats things up. If anything, it's kind of like air conditioning or refrigerator. As you know, these fans actually generate heat. But that blowing of the air across the skin, it can help with evaporation. It can give you the sensation of cooling. And that's one of those things when you're when we talked about the, the convection of moving your blood to the surface, well, pushing that cold air also across the surface of your skin. And, you, and you've probably seen this. You run maybe your wrist under cold water and, and immediately you feel cool. And it's because that heat is dissipating weight, or that's a very sensitive area. So those th those areas where, you know, the blood can get to the surface, the surface of your skin gets gets warmer. That fan blows air across it, helps dissipate that heat. So it's all part of the process. It's no different than how a, again a radiator works. It keeps you warm. It it warms the cold wa water, right? The that rises and spreads the heat out, and then the cold water sinks back in and gets warmed up again. So again, some of these things work for both staying cool, but also for getting warm. It's just kind of the reverse process. Of course, parasols and umbrellas have been used for ages, and I've seen an uptick in the use of those. Quite frankly, in areas, you know, in the U.S., I didn't, that was, didn't used to be very common. A lot of times you will see pictures of it in China on very hot days with people carrying it or other locations. Uh, you know, I, don't, I pick out China just because I've got that vision in my head, but there are other places around the globe that have used essentially a shelter and, you know and part of the key is getting it far enough away so there's air space because you want the air to continue to flow but you're really just trying to keep the radiation that's coming in from beating down on you directly so that's why they tend to be used on sunny days and it may not matter as much on a on a cloudy and overcast day or you know if you're sitting in a shady spot already and it's hot you know it's not going to add anything to that but still very effective when you're out in a bright sun of course so these are some of the traditional ways. You know, and I mentioned evaporative cooling. I mean, going and laying in some cool water. 
That's not the evaporative cooling, but this gets back into that conduction component and even convection because fluids are involved. It's tricky, and again, which of these you use. But anybody who's ever been hot knows that going and getting in a nice, cool body of water will certainly help dissipate that heat. And that's a common technique that's been used for years, but it's not necessarily the most effective thing. You can't in the middle of the day easily go lay in a, in a pool and immediately go back to work. And it's the same thing with like hotter areas of Europe, like Spain and the siesta. Well, there, there's actually logic for that. Not working in the hottest part of the day, and Spain can get particularly hot in the summertime, is a very logical thing to do. So, you know, people put all these things around it. Oh, they're, they're, they're napping or whatever. It's, it's the easy life. Well, you also know in the Spanish culture that they tend to have like a morning session and an evening session. And so they tend to work much later in the day or be active much later in the day. And part of that is trying not to expend energy when it's hot. And, the, you know, people tell you that as, as well. Slow down. Take it easy. And our culture doesn't always allow for that, does it? So that's realistic sometimes. And that's why maybe when you go to tropical islands and there doesn't seem to be a hurry, yeah, sometimes you'll hear it's because they're relaxing and everybody's taking it easy. But a lot of times... It's because they know that getting all worked up and sweaty isn't going to help anybody. It's going to make you more cranky and irritable. But let's talk about maybe some of the counterintuitive or the not-so-obvious ways. Because there were three that I came across that really kind of fit in that category that at first glance you go, are you kidding me? And this really gets into the why you shouldn't drink iced tea. Now, a researcher who's currently at the University of Sydney Dr. Ollie J. he runs the, or he's the director of the Thermal Ergonomics Laboratory there. And he's done a lot of research on the idea that instead of having iced tea on a hot day, you should actually drink hot tea or coffee or whatever it might be. And, and the idea is, it's interesting because, you know, at first glance you think, oh, I'm drinking hot beverage. It's warming me up versus nice cold tea that cools me down. But what the research shows is that actually that hot beverage makes you sweat. So it induces that sweating. And ideally, if you're in a really dry climate, that sweat will evaporate. So it helps carry that heat away. So just creating the sweat is a process that cools your body. And it seems that it's not so much about the temperature of the beverage. And, and again, there's been a lot of research kind of trying to understand the why, but it seems that it's based on the mouth and the throat and the triggers that we have in there to induce that sweating, right? When you're drinking this hot beverage. So we have receptors there that say, hey, drinking a hot beverage, it's a hot day, make them sweat. And again, that allows us more effectively to dissipate it versus what's happening in the body with the beverage itself. And the, the flip side of this, one of the reasons they say not to eat ice cream, let's say as an example, or anything that you have to do heavy digestion on is because that actually heats your body up. So eating a lot of food can make your body actually hotter. But again, this hot beverage induces that sweating response and allows that heat to be carried away from your body. Now, a second one that's kind of related to that has to do 
with climates and cultures where they tell you eat spicy food. And a lot of times you'll find the spicier food. I, I, you know, we're drawing a lot of conclusions here. I think a lot of people that write the articles on this stuff want to draw conclusions that spicy food tends to be originating from areas that are hotter and that the reason they're doing it, so on, so on, so on, so on, so on. But it, it does seem that there's some legitimate aspect to it that eating that spicy food, so, you know, having a hot pepper at lunch, and we all know what happens to your body when you eat a hot pepper actually will cool you off. And again, there's a, a researcher, Dr. Luke Laborde. I'm, I'm probably saying that wrong. I apologize in advance. But he works at, with food safety at Penn State University here in the U.S. And there's a phenomenon called gustatory facial sweating. And this, again, has to do with what's going on in our mouth and throat triggering a response to eating that pepper or that spicy food and it makes us flush and, and again any of any of us who've ever experienced really spicy food particularly if you're not used to eating it know this response and the response again is more focused on the actual consumption process versus what it does long term to your body and so you would again you wouldn't want to eat lots and lots of spicy food because then your body will ultimately heat up. You might cool in the short term, but then you'll get hot afterwards. But a little bit, having a pepper maybe for a snack, can go a long way again at creating this sweat. And it's one of our more effective ways to dissipate heat. So it's all about that balance, right? Where are we dissipating more than we're creating? You know, again, a big meal might make us cool to begin with, a big meal of spicy food if we're sitting there sweating, but then in the long run, it doesn't do us any good. So keep that balance in mind. Now, the last of these is something that those two are kind of newer areas. This last one has to do with something that's been studied for a very long time. And it's because it's something that's confused people for a very long time, which is why people in the desert tend to wear darker robes. What's the deal with this? Now, there is a lot of research into animal plumage, feathers, fur, whatnot, into whether dark or lighter keeps you cooler or warmer. And people at first thought it was related to this, but here's really what we found. Again, a lot of research over the years. It's not new. I found some articles, you know, from 20, 30, 40 years ago sort of thing. So it's not a new topic. So people have been looking at it for a long time, but it seems to be there's a combination of things. And I will tell you, a lot of the articles I read online there was misinformation presented. So be careful in terms of, you know, even people trying to convey the science were using phrases that weren't the right phrases. So I don't want to get hung up on that because it's really nuanced in what's going on. One of the things that we do know about dark surfaces is they tend to absorb heat. Now, this is this can be visible heat, like what you see from the sun, but it also has to do with, like, even infrared radiation that we don't see. And again, keep in mind, as I said, our body, that tends to be the primary way that we radiate is in the infrared range. But this generally means that that black fabric actually gets really hot, particularly the outer layer that's facing the sun, let's say. But on the flip side of that, as long as it's loose, and this is where the tricky part comes in, you wouldn't want to wear any tight clothing, generally speaking, because it's just going to make you hotter. 
for the most part. But if it's a loose robe and it's hot on the outer surface, that can induce convection as long as there's airflow that can get in from the ground and whatnot into the area around the body. So that triggers convection. There's also the flip side on this that apparently our human, as our human body radiates, that that dark fabric does a better job of absorbing as opposed to pushing it back to our body. So there's a lot of little nuances in it. But the the fundamental finding here is dark loose clothing probably does a better job of keeping you cool than light, even loose clothing. The tricky part is that the darker fabric, it's better if it's thicker because that doesn't let the radiation or the heat coming from the outside in. And again, you know, the situation, it, it may not always apply. Whereas a lot of things will tell you where loose light clothing. So things could flow away from your body or, or uh, sweat can be wicked away from your body. So, you know, when we get into the technologies of fabric science and all the new things we're talking about, we may get that light, a light color version is better. But generally speaking, if you had an option and you were stuck in a situation and you had to create some sort of robe out in the desert, you would probably be better off staying cool with dark fabric, not light fabric. Three sort of kind of things that you wouldn't have thought based on common things that we think about or have been told over the years, right? So now what I want to know from you guys, has anybody seen this mission towel? It's being advertised by Serena Williams and it's it's sort of, I don't, they, some sort of wicking process, but you moisten the towel and then you pop it and somehow you put it on your body and it helps keep you cool. I, I'm curious if anybody knows if it's any good. I saw the ads. I'm looking at it going, I'm not so sure how that's different than another towel. So if you've used one, let me know. Let me know what you think of it. I'd like somebody's opinion besides just the advertising. All right. So one other question I have before we, we get on our way here. Somebody asked me about my setup. You know, what do I, what am I using to podcast? And I'm going to cover kind of to the computer and I use an ATR 2100 microphone. You'll find if you go out there, a lot of podcasters have started using this microphone. Now, one of the comments on it is it tends to have a little more pop, pop issue with it. And you may have heard that in some of the earlier episodes. Now I've added just a very simple, what they call a windscreen. You can hear it here. And all it really is, is it's, you know, you people under don't really, they see these things and they don't really understand necessarily what it is, but it just looks like a big flat disc in my case. But the idea is it changes the way the air flows from your mouth to that microphone and it takes off that edge. And, and lastly, I just have it on a, it's the brand is called newer. It's just an arm, you know, you old desk lamps, same sort of thing that just allows it to move around. Nothing too fancy. That's my basic setup between my mouth and the computer. In a future episode, we will get into maybe the flip side once things get into the computer. All right. As you know, this summer, I've been hitting a little bit more on the RSVP. We've covered rate and share, and I'm going to speak a little bit more about validate today. The reason this is so important is it helps me know that I'm on track that you guys are interested. Yeah, I can see I get new viewers, new listeners, and the numbers going up hopefully signals that, that I'm on the right track. But it's important for me to know if I try something new for one time or, or you know, do little one-offs, did you just let me know? Did you, do you like the topics? 
Did you like something I did in particular? And also, is there something you don't like? These little things help me make it better for everybody. And again, it's an easy way. And, and no, there's no, you know, send me a simple email. It doesn't have to be complicated, but I don't care whether it's a show idea, whether it's I wish you did this or I wish you didn't do that or I wish you did some more of these or not those. Or have you ever thought about, because the other thing it does is it allows me to have a conversation with you outside the podcast. And those who have suggested episode ideas know I tend to follow up with you and have a conversation and a dialogue. One, it helps us get to know each other a little better. So I have a little more insight into the people listening to the podcast. But it's also another way for us to engage that doesn't have to be something, you know, you know, so-and-so asked the following question. You know, a lot of times people don't want me to use their name and all that. I understand that. And that's why usually, I, you know, with show ideas, I ask, you know, is it okay? But then I tend to use first names just to keep it simple. Just keep it simple. But all those things help me and make my life easier going through this process. Cuts down on the time. You know, if, if I don't get show ideas from people, I've got to come up with them. And I, and I like to do some that I come up with, but I like to do things that you guys want to hear about too. So take a moment, pop me an email, hit me up on Twitter, put something on the Facebook page. I don't, I don't care where it is. Just reach out and stay in touch. All right. You know the drill, how to get in touch. What is it about the weather at gmail.com or simply go to what is it about the weather.com and slash contact. And you can find out the ways to follow, whether it's Facebook, Twitter, me on Instagram, whatever it might be, how to get in touch, how to support the show, the whole RSVP thing. So until next time, let me just say, I hope you have an enjoyable intertwined weather week, because as we all know, there's much more to weather than the weather itself. This is two white sofa production. We're tired of hearing our uncle grovel, so please support him on Patreon dot com slash weather.